0: We cannot change the past, but we can and must do everything in our power to help you build a future without fear. Western governments and the United Nations were allowing this to happen for reasons of Cold War politics. But could and should the UN have done more before the killing and burning started? The UN, he says, they did absolutely nothing to protect us.
1: Hi, my name is Livia Hewson. And I'm Anjali Takor. And this is Never Again, Again. We
2: are both students at Claremont mm-hmm. McKenna College, and our first episode will speak to the origins of genocide. In
1: 1921, Sagaman Talarian, an Armenian avenger of the Ottoman destruction of Christian minorities, was arrested for murdering Talat Pasha, the architect of the Armenian Genocide. Talarian stood trial for the crime of killing one man. While the perpetrators of the genocide were released for the crime of killing a nation. Raphael Lemkin, a Polish student of Jewish descent at the University
2: of Lviv, struggled to reconcile these contradictory actions and thus began an initiative to stage an intervention against what he initially described as barbarity or vandalism. Throughout the 1930s and 1940s, Lemkin actively campaigned for governments to recognize the crime of a premeditated destruction of national, racial, religious, and social societies. His initial words, barbarity, and vandalism, failed to gain international and governmental recognition. Thus, Lemkin invented his own term to describe this atrocity without a name. Using both Greek and Latin roots, Lemkin created the term known as genocide. The roots Greek, genos, meaning race or tribe, and Latin, side, meaning killing.
1: Lemkin described genocide as the destruction of a nation or ethnic group, involving a coordinated plan aimed at the destruction of the very foundations of life of national groups. As per any definition of genocide, the question of whether mass killing is integral to genocide and the inclusion of political groups proved contentious. Lemkin's coinage of the term genocide in the early 1940s
2: didn't factor into the Nuremberg trials. However, through Lemkin's extensive lobbying, the 1948 UN Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide inscribed a nuanced definition of genocide into international and domestic law.
1: Here is how the United Nations' definition of genocide currently stands. The first article stipulated that genocide, whether committed in a time of peace or a time of war, was a crime under international law. The second article describes genocide
2: committed with the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethical, or religious group, as such as a killing members of a group, causing serious mental harm to the members, and forcibly transferring children of a group to another group.
1: The third article outlines which genocidal acts are punishable, including genocide itself, conspiracy to commit genocide, and the direct and public incitement to commit genocide. To further discuss the
2: origins of genocide, Raphael Lempin's story,
1: and the contentious
2: nature of defining genocide, we will be bringing in genocide specialist, Professor Adam Jones of the University of British Columbia.
1: Adam Jones is a political scientist, photojournalist, and writer based at the University of British Columbia. His work is primarily coalesced around studies of comparative genocide, gender, and international politics, and he is the author of a number of well-known books including Genocide, a Comprehensive Introduction, and Gendercide and Genocide. Jones also co-founded a web-based NGO called Gendercide Watch, and has worked as an expert consultant with the United Nations Special Advisor on Genocide Prevention and the Responsibility to Protect. We are absolutely delighted to have Professor Jones with us today to help us trace the origins of genocide and highlight the significance of the 1948 United Nations Genocide Convention. So Raphael Lemkin said, genocide is a new word, but the evil it describes is old. So how would you trace the origins of genocide?
0: Well, for a while there was a debate over whether genocide should be considered a kind of eternally embedded phenomenon in human affairs, or whether the word should be reserved for the contemporary period basically the modern period because it was argued that only in modern times with modern technologies could you really have the degree of social organization and technological capacity to commit something as broad and as sweeping as the holocaust usually it's People were thinking in terms of that particularly industrialized model of genocide. Lemkin, and indeed the United Nations Genocide Convention mentions this in uh, its preamble, uh, were of the opinion that genocide was something that had always been in human affairs. Uh, And Lemkin, indeed, was... Uh, animated to study the subject of the destruction of minority groups in history by an extensive reading and learning as a child and an adolescent about historical genocides going back to uh, Christians under the Romans or um, indigenous peoples worldwide, for example. Uh, So he clearly had a sense that he was naming something that had been around for a long time and working to criminalize something that had been broadly accepted in human affairs as the right of the ruler or the right of the state to do what they want to their own populations. And uh, Lemkin and genocide advocates ever since have been persuaded uh, that genocide can kind of go the way of slavery, you know, that it's one of those institutions that everybody took for granted for thousands of years and then came to realize that it was atrocious and should be banished from human affairs. And I think in terms of the evolution of the genocide studies field, despite a couple of early contributions that argued that the Holocaust was unique and genocide could only be a phenomenon of modernity, I think the broad consensus in the field now is more Raphael Lemkin's understanding that genocide can meaningfully be studied going back very early in the human record.
1: Mm. Yeah,
2: so we see Raphael Lemkin as this really integral member of presenting genocide. Can you describe a little bit about his lobbying process and Mm. um, kind of how Lemkin himself got his way, made his way up to the UN um, Genocide Convention? Mm.
0: Well he had an amazingly checkered and colorful and also tragic career because he grew up in a isolated part of Poland that is now in Belarus. Fortunately with a very educated and cosmopolitan family. He was of Jewish Polish background. And he found himself studying as a young man at the University of uh, Lvov or Lviv as it's called in Ukraine today. Um, originally studying linguistics, but this was in the early 1920s when um, there was a series of assassinations taking place by Armenian militants of leading Turkish figures involved in the Armenian genocide during the First World War. And one of these assassins was put on trial in Berlin and it was a real cause celebre of the day and a a big uh, news story internationally. Interestingly, the assassin was acquitted on grounds of um, temporary insanity or uh, lack of responsibility for his deeds. But Lemkin had a conversation with a law professor at that time and said, why is it that we don't have an international law against the mass murder of the Armenians by the Turks and any other minority that is wiped out, and yet here is a guy who is on trial for a single murder, and that is supposed to be the worst crime of all. And he was troubled by that inconsistency in a sense that um, the... Moral outrage against homicide was not matched by an even greater outrage for state atrocities of this kind, generally committed by the state. And there's a, to cut a very long story short, he makes some early legal endeavors in this area in the 1930s without notable success. In the Second World War, he is sent fleeing all the way across Asia by the Nazi invasion of Poland and he loses dozens of his family members in the Holocaust and he makes his way eventually to the eastern seaboard of the United States, mostly Yale University and Duke University, where he did his important work during the war for the U.S. War Department. And it was in a book that he published in 1944 under the edges of uh, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace uh, called Axis Rule in Occupied Europe. And it was a study of Nazi occupation policies through the lens of what he called for the first time genocide. And he named it. We're familiar, the roots of the word from Greek and Latin, basically the destruction of uh, races or tribes, national groups, as Lemkin called them. And uh, from then until the relatively early end of his life in 1959, uh, but particularly for the several years after the war when there was that, Um, brief but important moment of openness to dramatic initiatives on the human rights front and he was able through relentless lobbying and cultivating of contacts at every level and sending out thousands of letters and bugging people endlessly to get a convention against genocide on the agenda of the United Nations to get it debated. Obviously, he found others to help him advance that cause. And incredibly rapidly, within just four years of naming the crime, uh, you had a United Nations convention against it, which is still in existence today. The definition is a little different or somewhat different uh From Lemkins. Uh, There were compromises as a result of state interest and um, all the kinds of uh, machinations that any international convention goes through. Uh, But it is a very valuable legal instrument, and it really all began with one person.
1: So you mentioned this brief period of openness at the end of World War II where the international crime of genocide was established in a very bold and path-breaking attempt at international law. So what is genocide's place in international law, or specifically genocide as defined by the UN Mm -hmm. Genocide Convention?
0: Well, genocide is a a marker on a longer road that goes back to the mid 19th century, at least, and with a little creativity, you could trace it back centuries earlier, and um, you know, the, the to the dawn of any idea of human rights. Mm-hmm. But I think when we talk about humanitarian initiatives of that kind, legal conventions, etc you're really thinking of that great wave of humanitarian activism that began in the mid-18th century with the anti-slavery movement, I would say, working at the national level, and then in the 19th century included things like the advent of the Red Cross and the idea of humanitarian protections during wartime um, you get also the rise of the nation state and ethnic understandings of nationalism, which I think provides a kind of romantic capital R backdrop to Lemkin's understanding of human beings as divided into civilizational groups and integral groups of that kind. It's quite a distinctive mid-late 19th century romantic perspective in some ways. Um, And then, of course, in the early 20th century, you get the um, Hague Conventions, you get um, the creation of the League of Nations and its specialized agencies after World War One. Um, so there is a kind, and that's not even to mention uh, the Congo Reform Association, uh, women's movements of the time, a whole range of kind of emancipatory and humanitarian thinking. So I think any instrument from the mid-20th century needs to be viewed against that backdrop. Mm. Um, What I think is notable in the specific context of the Genocide Convention um, is the shock to the system represented by World War II and at least the... Uh, German and Japanese mass atrocities in the areas that they occupied. There were other atrocities, notably by the Soviet Union, but since the Soviets were on yes. the winning side, there they didn't get examined with quite the rigor that the losing parties did. And, the, of course, they uh, the... Uh, You know, the Soviet camps were not conquered and occupied and revealed to the world the way that the Nazi camps were or the Japanese uh, prisoner of war camps and so on. So there was a a collective shock from the dissemination of that news, those images, uh, the emergence of the contours of the Jewish Holocaust and just how many people had been murdered. And so on. And that contributes to not just the Genocide Convention in 1948, but the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in the very same year, the, genocide, uh, the Geneva Conventions in the very same year. Uh, And, of course, one can continue the story forward to the rise of the human rights NGOs and and a whole range of other humanitarian initiatives. So there has been, I think, a notable uh, strand in international society of these kind of initiatives going back a couple of hundred years, at least. And Lemkin and that particular post-World War II period and the, the emergence of a, a concept and a law of genocide is, I think, one of the uh, notable points along that route.
2: Yeah. So there's this big culminating moment we have with the UN Genocide Convention of 1948. And I think obviously in terms of the UN, they're focusing on the mass atrocities witnessed, um, you know, during the Holocaust. But I think Lemkin has somewhat of a different perspective on genocide, and it's less focused on mass atrocities and more so on the effect of different, like, political groups. So I guess, can you discuss a little bit about what is Lemkin's definition of genocide, and how does that differ with the UN's definition of genocide?
0: Yeah, as I mentioned, Lemkin kind of came from a kind of early sociological and anthropological background in some sense. His framework on the world was that humanity was a great tapestry of individual human groups, each defined by their identity, culture, historical trajectory, traditions, you name it. Um, and that the loss of any of those groups to the human tapestry was a tragedy and should be a crime. Uh, what he meant by loss, or more specifically destruction, is the destruction of the collective, shared, Uh, identity and social trajectory of the group. The, uh, The bonds among them of culture, language, economic subsistence, geographical location, a whole range of features. And for Lemkin, genocide was a coordinated and multifaceted assault against most of those elements of identity and subsistence of the group, in which mass killing of members of the group was a subsidiary element at best. Lemkin was more focused upon the destruction of cultures, the destruction of identity-based groups. And that's one of the reasons I think we've seen a return to Lemkin in some contemporary genocide studies and in some indigenous people's activism, for example. Uh, Because that framing, first of all, does resonate very much, I think, with indigenous peoples under colonialism all over the world, this kind of multifaceted physical, biological cultural, linguistic, etc, assault on a population without mass murder necessarily being prioritized. So that that's one source of its kind of renewed appeal today and I also think m- maybe um, slightly more skeptically that the appeal, of it relates in part to the resurgence of identity politics more broadly, that identity is probably more important as a marker of political identity or political uh, orientation today than it's been for a while. And um, so Lemkin's framing, anyway, I think fits well with that and and might um, be resurging in popularity, in part for that reason. Um, The United Nations Genocide Convention, the period between Lemkin's formulation and the early drafting and then the subsequent redrafting of the convention, is a very interesting process to follow. We have all of the working papers from that process that have been compiled and published in two huge legal volumes and you can follow those through and see the way, for example, there was very serious discussion until very late in the process about including political groups uh, or including cultural forms of genocide a la what Lemkin had mentioned and been preoccupied with. And for various reasons, sometimes cynical power politics, Uh, you can certainly say, for example, that one of the reasons political groups didn't make it into the convention was that the Soviets had just finished massacring politically identified groups by the millions over previous years and thought that that would not be a very... um, helpful spotlight to be shed upon their activities. Um, The United States and Canada, and surprise, surprise, the other colonially-derived settler countries, were concerned about this notion of cultural genocide, and some of them were quite explicit that, well, if you start talking about that, then someone might accuse us of genocide because of what we did to indigenous peoples. You know, imagine that, that was was almost unthinkable back in the mid 20th century that the nice Western democracies could be accused of such things and that was not the point of the convention at all, right? So for those reasons, and I think for some more honest ones, for example, when you really unpack that idea of cultural genocide, you get into some gray areas that I personally am not comfortable with, uh, and have tended to keep uh, I've tended to keep my own framing of genocide more focused upon mass killing and severe physical violence. Mm. One could say psychological violence as well. Articles two, A, and B of the genocide Convention strategies. Um, but uh, without going into, you know a lot of detail about why some scholars or advocates would prefer one approach or the other, I think it's important. Uh, to recognize the way that those cultural and sociological understandings were marginalized in the United Nations Convention but have begun to stage a significant uh, resurgence in academia and also in the legal sphere uh, in the last couple of decades.
1: Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and help us trace the origins of genocide. Professor Jones gave us a really comprehensive overview on the origins of genocide. And one thing he said that really resonated with me was the question of whether the term genocide should be reserved for the contemporary period. Mm. And as we return to the
2: contemporary period, Jones is really talking about this return to Lemkin's definition. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it'd be interesting to look at genocide and its place in history, Um, whether that's modernity versus ancient uh, globalization or this return to Lemkin's definition. Um, So let's start first with this question of modernity versus Mm -hmm. ancient.
1: I think it's important to recognize that historically the concept of genocide has evolved and that a lot of scholars have argued that it's only been in modern times with modern technology that we have the degree of social organization or the technological capability to commit genocidal acts.
2: Mm. And it's important also to recognize that humanity has really always nurtured this concept of social difference and those social differences create this Um, in-group versus out-group mentality.
1: Mm -hmm. I think quite a problematic assumption is that genocide is an exclusively state-sponsored crime or that it's only implemented by government institutions, especially in our increasingly globalized world. I think that assumption not only overestimates the strength of state systems, but it more importantly ignores the role and participation of diverse social groups and local non-state actors in mass violence.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point, especially as I think genocides are different in um, the 21st century than Mm -hmm. they were in the 20th century. Um, A lot of genocides today adopt trajectories of civil war or ethnic conflict that kind of transcend state boundaries. Yeah. Uh, You can see that, you know, with Rwanda Mm -hmm. um, and definitely many others. Um, So we really think we can't think of genocide in terms of solely state actors.
1: Yeah, I think that a more relevant approach might be recognizing that genocide itself is not a fixed definition because Mm -hmm. it's inevitable that new forms of genocide will emerge, you know, with um, changes in technology and those genocidal acts will no longer fit pre-existing definition
2: right so i'm curious what you think do you think we should frame genocide as a social object rather than a natural category
1: definitely i don't think that genocide should be viewed as a natural category because i think um, it's part of this ongoing dynamic i think for example originally genocide was thought of in terms of ethnic conflict or intergroup war that it was like the excess of existential conflict, or conflict over scarce resources. But since then, we've kind of evolved to this understanding that genocide can be separated from war. It's a a unique phenomenon, and I think the UN Genocide Convention does a really good job of highlighting how genocide is separate from war, as it argues that um, genocide can occur in times of war or times of peace.
2: Mm. And so, I think as we approach the definition of genocide, it's almost important to be intentionally vague. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean...
1: I think that what you were saying about being intentionally vague is quite interesting. Like, I think I would approach genocide with some kind of definition, like, genocide is the attempted or accomplished destruction of a group. And I think all cases of genocide, both historic and contemporary, can be tested against this definition. And there already exists, you know, some features that are determined as genocidal by previous cases, by scholars. And through deliberation, I think new cases as they emerge can be added to this canon of genocide mm. that kind of gives us an evolving definition rather than a fixed one.
2: Right. I think other scholars have proposed kind of a different at- mm-hmm. a- a- approach, I would say. Um, I think David Schaefer has this notion that he wants to separate genocide from its legal definition. Yeah,
1: Yeah. and I think um, there are scholars like Mark Levine who have come up with their own kind of lens for how they would see genocide. For example, Zones of Violence, which is a more geographic or like regional-oriented approach to genocide. And also there is Christian Gerlach's Extremely Violent Societies as an alternate to genocide, as he argues, the word genocide should not be applied outside international law. So he comes up with a different term that doesn't have the same legal implications. So yeah,
2: I think Schaefer is uses the term atrocity crimes, mm-hmm. which it's like he wants to introduce introduce as like a completely new sect of international law. Mm-hmm.
1: I think it's quite interesting the question of whether genocide has application outside international law because right. it is such a loaded term.
2: Yeah. Um, interestingly, I think as we see genocide as this progressive thing, something that's evolved, in many ways, we're returning back to Lemkin's original Mm -hmm. definition of genocide. Um, and I think Lemkin's definition of genocide was obviously had the physical killing as a component, Mm -hmm. but he also referred to genocide as a coordinated plan of different actions. So that could be the mass killing of a singular nation group, but it could also be the elimination of like, a national culture or religious mm-hmm. life.
1: I think it's quite interesting to you know, put Lemkin's definition and the UN's definition side by side and just see some of the stark differences in that Lemkin's was definitely seemed more inclusive, mm-hmm. and he kind of presented like this range of genocidal acts, whereas mm. the UN really focused on physical destruction or physical killing.
2: Right. And Lemkin really placed this emphasis on the destruction of a group as a Mm socio-cultural unit. Um, So you're destroying the group's social power in in kind of an economic, a political, and a cultural sense. Um, And this just really destroys um, social groups' autonomy and um, identity as well. Mm,
1: Some of the characteristics you're describing that was a part of Lemkin's definition makes me think of aboriginal and indigenous people who have also kind of used Lemkin's definition in order to argue that what was done to them by colonial powers Mm. does constitute as genocide right this kind of erosion of cultural life or social life and I think that if we saw, if we're seeing a shift back to Lemkin I think um, cases of cultural genocide perpetrated against Um, aboriginal societies will Mm -hmm. definitely come up yeah in the coming years
2: and there's an another resurgence of cultural genocide we see in the 1990s um, and perhaps cultural genocide itself is not genocidal Mm -hmm. but I think it's a good way to show a marker of intent to commit genocide
1: yeah I definitely think um, this question of intent is quite a central one the UN definition Highlights um, proof of intent yes. as a key marker of genocide, and a conviction on the crime of genocide is only um, is only applicable in international law if you can prove intent. Mm. And I think um, it's it's difficult <laughs> to figure yeah. out how to go about proving intent because that is such a nuanced and yeah. There's no clear boundaries between what is intent and what is not intent.
2: Or, like, what is intent and what is motive.
1: Yes, yes. Um,
2: but on that <laughs> note, it's a really difficult topic. Um, but we're curious to see what forms of uh, genocide will take in the future.
1: Especially given our current climate crisis and issues of privacy and technology in an information age.
2: But we'd like to thank you so much for listening.
1: We are grateful for the Keck Center for International and Strategic Studies at CMC for sponsoring our podcast.
2: And a special thank you to Professor Terrell Jones and Hilary Apple for their mentorship.
1: See you next week.
2: Bye.